Welcome everyone to the Bread of Life, a radio ministry of the International Mission Church Partnership Evangelism and its associate fellowship, the Bread of Life in Boise, Idaho. I'm Joe Van Hoogen, the director of CPE, and I'm your Bible teacher. If you wish to learn more about our work to raise up evangelists and church planters around the world, go to traincpe.org. And to learn more about our church in Boise, Idaho, go to breadoflifeboise.org. We're considering Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and the person who is under conviction for their sins. When a person comes under the conviction of sin and its judgment, there's a pushback that often takes place within them. Very often it takes the form of using an attribute of God in one's own defense. Paul is reporting to us this manner of argument, and he's showing us how to meet it so that we can bring people to see their sin, their judgment, and their need of a Savior. The protest is this. God's faithfulness means he will keep his word even though some are not faithful to him. Doesn't God have to remain faithful even though some are not? Paul's answer is this. Without a doubt. You can count on it. God is faithful. Let God be true and every person a liar. Actually, if you put it in the negative, basically this. Can some person's faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And Paul says it this way. God forbid. May it never be. Absolutely not. God will be faithful to everything that he's promised. But that's not a comfort either. This individual knows. That God's faithfulness to his promises includes not only his promises to bless, but he's also faithful to his promises to curse. God has given promises to bless those who obey him, but he also has promised to curse those who resist him and disobey him and will not come in faith to him. And when the nation of Israel failed then when God brought them to the promised land to go in and there was a generation that died in the wilderness and another generation rose up and and it was to that second generation that Moses remained to teach them the law that's what we have in the book of Deuteronomy we have the second law the repeating of the law that God gives to the second generation before they go into the promised land and Moses gave them some instruction that when they went into the promised land they were to go and gather the nation was to gather at the foot of two mountains Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim and half of the nation was to stand on Mount Ebal and half of the nation was to stand on Mount Gerizim and then there was to be a sacrifice that was made and the law was to be read and then the curses against those who disobeyed the law were to be pronounced and those on Mount Ebal after each curse were to cry out amen so be it so be it and then after that the blessings were to be pronounced from Mount Gerizim before the people blessings and curses is a part of what God gave to the nation when they came in into the land the promised land and and in Joshua 8 They arrive into the promised land. God gives them this miraculous victory over Jericho and another great victory over the people of Ai. And then they go to the place of Mount Ebal and Gerizim and they declare this law is declared before them and this act of confession before the law, before the curses and the blessings are made by the people. It's in that sense and understanding these blessings and cursings that you should understand what Moses says. And and one of the last statements that he makes to the people of Israel before he passes away, before he dies, it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Take your Bibles and go there. Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'm going to read to you verses 15 and 20. It gives a capstone of the charge that Moses has been giving to the people as he's laying the law before them. He says here, 
See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I commanded you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go and to possess. I call heaven and earth as a witness today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him. For he is your life and the length of your days. That you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give them. The point here is this. God is faithful. That's what Paul is saying. Yes, God is faithful. Let God be true and every man a liar. So that God is justified in his judgments. By the way, it says, so that God is, prevails when he's judged. You realize that when anyone judges, when a person renders a judgment, that immediately, whatever his verdict is and whatever his judgment is, he sets himself up for review, for a judgment of those who analyze his judgments. Just uh, yesterday, my wife and I had an opportunity to meet and spend some time with a gentleman who is the only federal judge in the state of Idaho. And he had come up and he had been trying a case and we were visiting with him. He was sharing with us something about the case. And then he said, now listen, don't believe what you read in the newspaper. Don't believe what the headlines are about it. It's not correct. What is he telling you? Somebody's rendering a judgment on his judgments, right? That's not what took place. That's not what I said. That's not what I determined. It's just kind of a little interesting aside. And it fits with what Paul is saying here. That God can't, will overcome. He prevails when he's judged. Ultimately, God has said it this way, the judge of all the earth will do right. He will prove himself righteous in all of his judgments because he's faithful. He's faithful to himself. He's faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his declarations, although all men at some point are not faithful to him. And so Paul, by making this affirmation of God's faithfulness that has been brought forward by the individual is not relieving this individual's conviction. He's magnifying it. And so the man gets a little bit more desperate. And so he says in verses 5 and 6 of Romans chapter 3, and, and you can go back there again. We'll keep going through this passage. Romans chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. The man protests a little more. He says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Paul now inserts here, I'm speaking as a man. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world, is Paul's answer. The protest is this. God's righteousness is magnified by our unrighteousness. So how can he judge us for our failures? And you can see here that the argument is getting more and more emotional and more and more desperate at this point. As the conviction tightens, the scramble for a way to get off the hook becomes more obvious. Here it seems to me that the person is really arguing that God must be merciful to him. God is the one who has set forward the laws that expose his sins, sins that he commits that reveal how righteous God is by contrast. And if God is righteous, then God must be merciful to us. 
when our unrighteousness demonstrates by contrast how truly righteous he is. That's their argument. Isn't your view of God's wrath then a little bit unjust, he's saying? Aren't you being a little bit harsh to say he's going to judge me? Paul says this tortured logic this man is giving. He says, you know, I am speaking as a man. I'm speaking as this man under conviction. He's giving us the logic of a person who's in the noose of conviction. He's trying to wriggle his way out of it. Remember, by the way, Paul's speaking to a religious Jew. And the religious Jew's hope above everything else was the coming of a Messiah. A Messiah that would come and reign and bring his righteous judgments upon the earth. A Messiah that would throw down all of Israel's enemies, which are supposedly the Messiah's enemies as well. And all of Israel will be exalted to reign and rule with this Messiah who is establishing his judgments. That's his hope. And so the very logic now this man is using is somehow against the very hope that he's anchored himself in as a Jew. And Paul says in answer to the man's question, is God unjust to inflict wrath? Paul says, may it never be. Again, absolutely not. How else will God bring justice to the world if he cannot judge it? Again, the point here is that God is righteous. You're correct in saying that he's righteous and we're not, but this does not change the fact that God is going to righteously judge the world. And if he's going to righteously judge the world, he's going to righteously judge you as well. And so this convicted man becomes even more desperate. He holds on to that argument, but now he translates it to make another argument. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. This is his final protest. For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, if my unrighteousness demonstrates his righteousness, if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? And now Paul begins to give a response. As we are slanderously reported, yes, I've heard this before is what Paul is saying. People have said this is what I'm suggesting. And just so you know, reason it that way, you think this way, your condemnation, their condemnation is just. Paul brings them right back to judgment again. Each one of these statements, every response that Paul gives is bringing them back to, yes, this is true. God has made a covenant and his covenant has been given and it's that you have heard his word that brings you under account to him and you're responsible for him. Yes, it's true. God is faithful and he'll be faithful to judge you if you don't keep his word. And yes, it's true. God is righteous, but God is righteously going to judge you. And yes, it's true that God speaks truth and God seeks glory for himself. If you think somehow this approves of your sin and gives you leeway to sin, well, your condemnation is just. But I think here, besides the argument that he's made in his third protest, I think this is basically what this man is saying. If, as you suggest, God's being true to his word and to the glory of who he is, if this requires that he judge me because of my lie or some sin that I've committed, and that he pour out his wrath upon me because of my lie and my sin that I've committed, that you've told me that I've done in the past, then you erase any reason for me of being good at all. Listen, if the way God demonstrates his truth and the way God demonstrates his judgment is he judges me because I told a lie, then why be good at all? I'll just throw in the towel now and I'll just live in my sin and I'll just pursue it. No reason, if I can't save myself by my good works and my attempt to be a good person, and I can't somehow save myself by doing these things, then why even try? I'll just 
give in to my sins. That's what I'll do. And Paul says, yeah, that's, people have said that's what I'm teaching. Yeah, I'm teaching unrighteousness. I'm teaching that you ought to just be more sinful, that God would be glorified. And if that's a conclusion you've drawn from all that I've said to you, your condemnation is just. Your condemnation is just. Actually, look at it this way. And pay attention to what's revealed in the statements this man is making. Follow with me here. First, his protest is an assertion about God before some general principle or some general idea of a covenant. Why be in this covenant with God? Second, he makes an assertion of God's faithfulness, but it's cast against the idea of some individual who might not be faithful. Right? Just because some are not faithful, that doesn't mean God is not going to be faithful. And then his next assertion is an assertion of God's righteousness in light of our unrighteousness. Oh, God is righteous if we're unrighteous. And that demonstrates that God is righteous. And then finally, in his final assertion, the conviction tightens down to God's truth before my lie. General idea, you know, general principle. Then, well, some who are unfaithful. And then, well, our unrighteousness. And then, my lie. He stops with my lie. What's the good of being an Israelite? What if some among us are unfaithful? What if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God? What if my lie magnifies his truth? And there it is. Below all the logic, below all the argumentation, below all the rationalization, there lies this one thing. My lie. My guilt. My sin. This has been the Bread of Life, a ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Church in Boise, Idaho. To learn more, go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may God bless you.